Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost and Criterion. I'm John Patrick Owatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who probably should have read the TripAdvisor reviews, I guess, right? <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and that is, uh, that's a pretty solid advice for almost anyone in a vampire movie, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> well, any horror movie, frankly. It's like, hmm, probably. Yeah. Mm. Uh, <laughs> should have read those. Paid attention to the one stars especially, right? Pat, that reminds me of... Uh, Pat and I have been making websites together for a very long time. <laughs> That's true. Uh, nearly 20 years now, actually, uh, as it turns out. Mm-hmm. Um, we've only been doing the podcast for eight, but we've been we've been doing websites together for 20 years. And at one point, about 20 years ago, it was a uh, it was a web comic. Oh God, don't remind and we me. Did, <laughs> we did at least one, if not a series, of web comics based on me and. And Pat and some other people trying to get to various concerts and completely failing at oh, using MapQuest. Yeah. Tri- TripAdvisor reviews reminded me of. Yeah. That was not an experience that really translated well to a three no, web No, it did board. not. It was terrible. They were but, not funny. Uh, but no, nothing we ever made but was we funny. But we did it. Um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> to be fair, the experiences were fantastic where we just drove and, like, that. That that's that's a lost time in, in, in his They were very ghostly mo- often. Yeah, we were driving in just school, like, because, you know, venues for, like, bad concerts or low-budget concerts are just, like, <laughs> a place with no signs. So you're just driving yeah. in circles and around this city that everybody's already in bed, and, yeah, no. When you're going to Christian Scott concerts, it's at yeah. a church in the middle of a cornfield in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yes, yeah, so. true. Yeah, I mean, they also, I mean... To be fair... The church is, for some reason, the size of a football field, but it's still <laughs> yeah, yeah. in the middle of nowhere. To be fair, <laughs> we are the people who should have read the reviews before they left in those movies, right? Like, <laughs> church, giant church, middle of a cornfield, totally dark, no other cars around. Yeah, this seems safe and fine, and everything Something will work out. going on there, almost certainly. I was going to say, I would, uh, I would watch a remake of this movie that was set at a Christian ska concert. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I, mean, I think all of us would. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm glad we're on the same wavelength with watching this movie where I just kept thinking about what the remakes of this movie would or could be. Like where you right, could place right. it and what could happen. Uh. Well, uh, that was Stephen Goldmeyer who's joining us today. Uh, very happy to have you, Stephen. And speaking of remakes of this movie only casually, this movie is based on a short story called Camilla. Uh, and that is... Uh, that is very tenuous. Um, yeah, actually, but a n- I have something to add on that. I actually have read a book yeah. about this <laughs> called yeah, Our right. Vampires Ourselves about uh, the depiction yeah. of vampires in cinema and, and in history. Uh, and so I, yeah. uh, this is the big surprise. I, I did research almost accidentally because I've read a book about vampires <laughs> in cinema. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Uh, where I was going yeah. was a, a non-vampire adaptation of that same story. Uh Poison Ivy, the Drew Barrymore film from from the early '90s, is uh, wow. is that story with all of its vampire elements stripped out. Okay, well, see, that's uh, what I was wondering because I was enough. trying to figure out. Now, now you put me in a position where I was like, okay, which is the one that is more like accurate to the original story, the one with vampires or without? Because I could believe both. The answer is like, the oh one yeah, we put vampires, vampires but no in. other story elements. Yeah, the one without, the one without. Uh, weird, awesome, perfect, to the feeling perfect. Of, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. That's what I like to hear. <laughs> we, right. I was just hoping to find out that Dreyer, for some reason, just added vampires to the movie and was like, 
<laughs> I felt like a no, no. In, in a he very added a lot of things Danish accent, be like, I thought it needed it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's an adaptation of really two stories from that book, and one yeah. of them is about a, a, a live burial, right, kind of thing, and then the other one's the yeah. vampire story. And the vampire story, Carmilla, is notable for a lot of ways in which it both broke with, but also reinforced vampire traditions of Victorian fiction. Uh, and this movie is notable some in some ways for the ways that it breaks from Carmilla's innovations on that subject, uh, but yeah. also how it breaks from the Victorian vision of, of vampirism and mirrors right. more closely the vision of vampirism in something like Dracula, even though... You know, it was like, I don't want to make a Dracula movie. It ends up making a <laughs> right, movie that's like right. much more in line with the way the sort of Dracula era of vampirism works um, than it is with the, the conceptions of vampirism in earlier Victorian literature. Absolutely. Yeah, anyway. No, more on that yeah. in a minute, but let's... Uh, let's fi- Sorry, I just did research. Let's finish up our introduction you know? stuff. No, that's very good, and I love it, and I'm sure it'll feed the rest of the episode. But let's play the theme song. Before we get into the movie this week, I do want to talk about our Patreon, patreon.com slash lostincriterion. If you want to support us, keep us going right over there for just a dollar a month. You get access to a bonus episode. You get to vote on what that bonus episode is going to be. You get to get access to all of the previous bonus episodes. There's uh, 41 different non-criterion film episodes over there. We have guests over there a little bit more often. In fact, our our guest this week, uh, Stephen Goldmeyer, has been a guest on our bonus episodes pretty often over there, too. Did did just one of my favorite episodes we've ever done was when he guested to talk about one of his favorite movies. Now you see me. Uh, it's a good one. It's a good episode. It is a good it one. It was really fun to do. <laughs> it was very Excited fun. to do Now You See Me, too. Uh, uh, yeah. When, when it comes around. <laughs> We'll do sequels to, uh, sequel. well, no, I can't do sequels to previous bonus episodes because then we end up talking about one of the movies in the Aliens franchise instead of, these are the things I have to think no, about when enough. I'm forming a list to try and get people. Right, because I would also vote for that. <laughs> yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Right, right. We'll watch, we'll watch Prometheus and then Steven's not even invited because if we're going to watch Prometheus, it's got to be a Donovan <laughs> yeah. episode. Just... God, it would be amazing. But yeah, for a dollar a month over there, uh, you can keep us going, you can give us a little bit of support. There's a couple other tiers. $5 a month, we uh, you obviously get access to the bonus episodes. It's really just there for people who, who want to give us a little extra money and feel like we deserve that. And we like to thank those people on air. Unfortunately, there's no one at that level right now. I say unfortunately, which isn't entirely true because everyone who is at that level popped up to the $10 a month support level. Uh, which we do something that I think is pretty special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watched recently, uh, and uh, this month is <laughs> something the, special. 
the previous one. <laughs> this will actually, this episode will post January 28th. So the December postcard uh, was, <laughs> was absolutely delightful. He does a, inspired by the holiday film we watched, Trancers, an episode Stephen was on as well. Uh, Pat did a sort of... Uh, <laughs> 80s mall uh, portrait <laughs> yeah, studio yeah, version of the Transfers poster. It was very good. It's got the lasers in the I don't, background. I don't, I don't nice. get the giggle while I make the postcard very often, yeah. but I spend the entire postcard production process giggling to myself. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. I mean, so, if you like a I postcard that looks like it was that. made with like Microsoft Paint, Trying to replicate a drawing <laughs> made in crayon, with crayons, you, you'll have yes. the idea. It's, yes, it's, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So I hope I hope the supporters who got those enjoyed it as much as Pat enjoyed making it, and I enjoyed seeing it for the <laughs> first time. We do like to thank those $10 and above supporters as well. So thank you so much, Christopher Otto, Jason Westhaver, Michael McGrath, Patrick Yako, and Adam Speakerman, our $10 and above supporters yes, right thank you now. very much. Uh, so this week, uh, as we have already alluded to, uh, but not said outright, we're watching Vampire. The 1932 vampire horror film by Danish director Caro Theodore Dreyer. Pat and I fell in love with Dreyer when we went through the Dreyer box set so many years That's ago. That's a long time ago. Uh, Oof. After the Dreyer box set, I believe, we watched uh, uh, his last silent film and widely regarded as his masterpiece, The uh, Passion of Joan of Arc. Uh, this is the film he made directly after Passion. Uh, Passion originally bombed, and so did this one as well. Um, interestingly enough, this is only the third outright vampire film uh, to exist, uh, according to uh, one of the e- film essays. Uh, I don't know. Someone who's read a book on vampire films might, might have be able some, to argue some against insight that. In that. <laughs> uh, it's certainly the first. It's the first canonical non-Dracula yeah, vampire film, yeah. certainly. Because yeah. prior we had. Uh, we had uh, Dracula, and we had uh, yeah Nosferatu. Nosferatu, Nosferatu yeah. before this, right? So right. Um, I think that's Nosferatu, right. Nosferatu uh, was uh, nineteen twenty-two, and Browning's version of Dracula was nineteen thirty-one. Mm-hmm. Came out while this was in production, uh, though there is a video bonus feature on the DVD. Um, which suggests that Dreyer saw Browning's Dracula and decided to make this movie. Um, I don't know that the production timeline actually works out for that to be true, but in any case, uh, yeah, there weren't there weren't a lot of vampire films already. Uh, one of the essays also points out that, uh, that there were a lot of movies with vamp or vampire in the title through the silence era. Uh, but that was because that vampire became a uh, a slang term for gold digger. Oh, okay. For a time through the tens and twenties. Oh, interesting. So, interesting. So that is uh, one reason that vamp <laughs> entered the lexicon and sticks around. And obviously changes meaning quite a, quite a bit over time. But yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> uh, but. But yeah, a very early vampire film, and uh, yeah, very, very innovative. As uh, as Stephen said, innovative to the terms of a vampire story, uh, and innovative to f- 
film <laughs> too. Yeah, uh, there's a lot, a lot of very lot interesting of things going on, going on here. Yeah, like yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think that's what got me the most was that was very. I, I was impressed by the sort of special effects use and, and things like that. We've talked of about that before, but they were they mm-hmm. were neat. They worked well. I mean, some of them are are things we we've seen before in earlier films. You know, like the the ghostly image stuff. But it's always neat when it shows up. It's still it's such a good effect. Like when it's done well. Yeah, it's, it's just a really cool well. effect that like it's like wow that that works really well. And this time it's an I, you know it's it's similar. It reminds me of the um, crap. It reminds me of. Uh, what, 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 who did we watch? What was the silent films we watched the other day? Um, for the bonus episodes, I'm I'm blanking now. Which one had the, oh, the, the Buster s- Keaton? Stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which which movie was it that had the hmm. the um the the dream ghost? Oh yeah, it's, so uh, it was the one where he's young Sherlock, young Sherlock, or yeah, Sherlock yeah, yeah, Junior rather. Sherlock Junior, and it, it's um. interesting to me that Sherlock Junior and this one share the fact that it's a dream. Uh ghost instead of an actual ghost and i was like wow that's it's just odd to me that that like they both are Uh, doing that dream projection is uh you know the the uh the seance culture of the right i know yeah it's it's definitely a thing of the time it's just like it's just a thing that nowadays i don't we don't run into basically at all like it's not you know it doesn't show up in film where like ah yes i dream ghosted myself to uh Except yeah, for la- as a joke. The last time basically. I experienced someone talking about a dream ghost, he was yelling about it in a uh, in a Greyhound station. So that's what I mean. That's what uh, I mean. Is it's become it a kind needs- of like a, it's a sort of thing that's a that's a punchline now, but like was, you know, in the nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, right, was a a thing that people, you know, it yeah. was the the, the I- spiritualism stuff going on. I say yelling, but that's a misrepresentation. He was actually very earnestly explaining the concept of projection, mm. astral projection, to an Amish woman. And and it was legitimately hilarious how polite she was being to him. Uh, uh, and also unfortunate, because she probably felt like she had to be polite to him and couldn't just walk away. Right. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, this was a guy fervently exp- explaining concepts that this woman had no yeah zero no interest interested, in yeah. whatsoever no desire <laughs> she's, to know she's gonna anything. go home and tell all of her friends all about the the uh, about yeah. sp- uh, you know astral projection or whatever <laughs> right right yeah, I heard right. the most interesting yeah. thing we should I, all try yeah. it later uh. <laughs> over tea well and also this the Dream Ghost was a, a, a song in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend <laughs> yes. that was about oh, the really? appearance of yes. dream ghosts to, you know, like, teach you about the situation <laughs> right. you're in or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, that I mean, that trope has come <coughs> far enough to be sort of uh, uh, right. directly parodied <laughs> right. uh, in in a musical uh, comedy television show. <laughs> uh, here's an interesting connection to the uh, other Criterion stuff that uh, that'll get out of the way. First, because I want to, I want to get out of out of the way everything that Stephen can't be involved with. Basically, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, Pat, the actress who plays uh, Leone, uh, the older sister. All oh, right, people have names. In is this a woman movie. named um, right? Is a woman named <laughs> yeah? You wouldn't know that from watching the movie necessarily. Um, uh, but she is. Uh, she's played by a woman named uh, Sybil Schmitz. Okay, and while. I don't know that we've necessarily seen Schmitz directly. Uh, interesting to what happens to her in this movie. Uh, she was actually put in the thrall she of eventually, a vampire? Uh, kind of. Okay. 
eventually, yeah. <laughs> not yeah, too far off. <laughs> eventually, later in life, uh, she met a doctor who kept her drugged up Jeez. in order to siphon off all of her money, uh, which would qualify by the colloquial definition of vampire that we've already talked about. Right? Have we, uh, have we talked about but, this before? Yeah. I feel like we've had this conversation the reason, before. The reason you think it's familiar is because her life story, her end of life story, is the basis for Rainer Warner Fassbender's Veronica Voss is a uh, oh, an adaptation right. of her life. Because we also talked about the fact that she was like, oh, right, because like, um, cause I'm on her Wikipedia page now, and I vaguely remember talking about like how she still premiered in films during the during uh, Nazi Germany time, and she's yeah. like later became a sort of pariah, right, also because of that? Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and I guess there's like a there's like a documentary about her on the, like the Criterion disc for <laughs> Veronica Voss yes, or something. Yes, there anyway, is. Whatever. Yeah, <laughs> uh, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, I don't know that we watched it. The uh, the Fastbender stuff right. had a had a lot to offer us. Yeah, that, that we was weren't, our, it was, those are, uh, weren't really yeah. seeking <laughs> outside for material extra stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, we definitely we definitely talked about her during that. Oh, so it's interesting, interesting to see a movie yeah. she was in. Uh, I don't know that we've seen her in anything else. We don't have a lot of uh, Nazi era German film in the Criterion I, Collection, it, thank God. It, uh, also, honestly, if I'm being honest, kind of shocking, frankly. Like, if we're being really honest about the Criterion Collection, I'm kind of shocked that there's not a Nazi Germany nah. box set. I mean, I, it, it it sounds yeah. mean, but like, I'm really kind of surprised. <laughs> It's not uh, one thing that uh, that I found interesting about both, you know, the the criticism slash observation about this movie in the book that I read, uh, but also just in in a general sense. There's something about these the way that these films are are venerated, that there's a lot of talk about um, substance, not substance, style, uh, the way they look, and sort of like you know the way they move cameras and stuff like that. And I don't know that there's as much attention paid to like. Were they made in <laughs> right, Nazi right. Germany? Are they apologia <laughs> right. for for right, fascists? Right, right. You know, like you know, there's not. <laughs> Criterion seems less concerned about those questions. Absolute, absolutely, absolutely true. Yeah. Nice, yeah. you know, and uh, something <laughs> we've we've talked about in the last few weeks of episodes. Yeah, I believe yeah. it. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> which is actually the last time we saw a Dream Ghost too was in Patriotism. Uh, oh right. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> not a very well done one. No, well, uh, I mean, we will not talk about one. The... One only needs to meet the level of the film that they're in, right? For for a dream ghost, right? <laughs> I so suppose if you're in a garbage movie, <laughs> um, you can be a garbage dream ghost. Right, the dream ghost. Is right, exactly. Right, exactly. I do. Want to. I do want to mention one more thing about Schmitz, uh, and it is completely throwaway. Uh, but in 1935, just after this, not her next movie, because she was a prolific actress at the time. Uh, but in 1935, she was in a movie in Germany called Punks Compt aus America. Literally, punks come <laughs> from the USA. Uh, and uh, that's got to be interesting, 1935, Punks yeah, Come from America. Like, I can only hope it's like a zombie-esque film about <laughs> Americans <laughs> in Germany or something. I don't know. I'm sure. Doesn't... De- doesn't yeah, I almost certainly not. not. I assume not. It's all, yeah. it's all yeah. in German. <laughs> all the all the coverage of it too. 
I don't know anything. Uh, but yeah, it's on yeah. YouTube. So if a we German to, who has been know? away too long in America and has lost all his money needs to prove himself to his fellow citizens, which he does by foiling the robbery of his uncle and then marrying his sweetheart. Oh. It's a uh, man named yes. Punk. A real letdown. Yeah. What, what a bummer. bummer. <laughs> it is his nickname, though, so I guess there's that. Still. Warner, Warner <laughs> Punk's Holzhausen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. Interesting. Uh, but Vampire. Uh, yes, the movie we're actually supposed to talk about. <laughs> the movie we're actually supposed to talk about. No, it's... Uh, yeah. This was really... It was a really fascinating piece of uh, of film craft. Uh Pat and I are are more familiar with with Dreyer's other work. You know, we've we've watched it, and and I, for one, at least, really we, really I like I liked elements of it. I, I remember had. liking, um, yeah. you know, not not a not whole cloth because he he does his sort of personal conservative nature does sort of come out in his film craft to a certain extent. They tend to be a little bit um, like I'm trying to think about the what the word would be, but they tend to be a little um, a little stiff. Not not necessarily in the acting, but in the sort of style, They're a little, like stylistically. Um, so right, right, I get that. He he definitely seems like he's um, one of these like uh, the equivalent of him these days would be like an art house kind of austere dude who's like, well, I'm doing experiments in uh, form. Well, I mean, you know, I, yeah, and, uh, yeah, take me very seriously. I, well, that is know? that is kind <laughs> of accurate. Um, an interesting thing about Dreyer is that he was very prolific in the silent era. He made Joan of Arc, which uh, the Passion of Jean, Jean d'Arc is widely considered to be his career masterpiece um, by mm-hmm. people looking back at his career later. Uh, but it bombed, and that was 1928, I think, 28 or 29. Right. Then he made this, which came out in 32, and it bombed. And then he didn't make a movie for 14 years or something? I think 12, yeah, 12 years. 14 years, something like that. Yeah, yeah it's quite maybe a long, long. Mm. The Dryer box set uh, that the Criterion released is five movies from five different decades. Right, yeah. Uh, 1940, mm. <laughs> moving on. Um, Which is also his career, right, it looks like. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, basically, yeah. I mean, yeah. the, the short films could have sort of get airspace inside movies, of there. Actually, but, but yeah, there's only like a film yeah. every, yeah, it's, it's really yeah. sparse. Huh. And uh, and an interesting, from someone who got his start in the silent era and did the bulk of his work in the silent era, Gertrude, his last film, is just one long conversation, basically. Uh, he became much more intent yeah, over the course of things on the the power of dialogue, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, that was definitely after R- this. Rather than having <laughs> people read novels on <laughs> Which, screen. Which, you know, yeah, I think... But. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, but I think that um, I think that from what I saw in passing on this, there are technical reasons that that is the case, right? That had to do with he sort of anticipated that we were going to have to record dialogue in three different right. languages, and so right, yeah, wrote yeah. as little as possible of the dialogue. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but you know, it also um, there's uh, it really does contribute to that mm. art house right. feel. You know, of like nobody's talking about what's going on. Nobody is saying like, "Hey, I saw so and so running this way. This ghostly apparition of such and such." Instead, it just like shows us this stuff and leaves us to sort of figure out what we're looking right. at. And I'm not upset about it, no. but it has this very like, you know, like um, I one of the art house movies I think about a lot is uh, I 
house movies. One of the movies that I think about a lot that typifies this style to me is a movie called Russian Ark, which is basically just a stylistic <laughs> right, experimentation. Right. right. Uh, and the reason that I think about it so much is because, you know, it's like really dense with like meaning and symbology and all this stuff. And it's a real technical like experiment and really wonderful and also makes no goddamn sense <laughs> if you don't have like right. a really, really keen sense of like Russian history over a certain 50 period time or whatever, right? Yeah. 50 year period. So, I, you know, I this movie is kind of like that in that if you like, you know, you don't know like the rules of it, it's not going to really walk you into them very carefully, right. even right. though it's doing all this on-screen exposition with that book, right. you know? Right. Um, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it's it's generally going to want you to just sort of like float through it. And that's uh, that's a strength in this case, and I'm really happy with it, but it definitely is not like, yeah, not like Dracula, you know. Right. Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's it's not meant to be. It, it is it is interesting in the fact that it is a vampire movie. And again, we talked about earlier how it's very early in vampire sort of cinema, anyway. But um, it you know it's not a poppy vampire movie in the sense that like it does have some things that are popular vampire tropes, but they are. It is not a pop. It is not. I I would not categorize it as a pop film in the sense that it's like oh yeah we're. We're off to the movie to go watch, uh, right. you know, well, Vampire, and we're all going to have a real right. fun party of it. It doesn't but read it, that way. But it is a synthesis of genre film and art film. True. In yeah. a similar manner to other movies, you know, we've watched either within and without the Criterion Collection. It's very much mm-hmm. in the same vein, and and later films borrowing this, certainly. Oh, but it's very much in the same vein as, say, Night of the Living Dead or uh, mm-hmm. what's it, the uh, Carnival of Souls. Mm-hmm. Um, right, yeah. I, I was thinking more in terms of the pacing and things like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like, yeah, you're right, absolutely, about it being a, sort of a synthesis that way. I'm just saying that, like, it it has the pacing. It it manages to be a, a air quotes, horror film that has a drier film pacing. Uh, which right. is, is saying a very specific thing about like, well, we're going to move at this clip and this is how it's going to happen and it's never going to speed up or slow down. This is what's going to, things are going to be very well measured and paced out. Uh, it's just not a complaint. I mean, I, I, yeah. I liked a lot about it. Um, it's just, it, it, it is not like, it's not a popcorn flick. Yeah. Like, I don't, yeah. Well, think. and that- I think there are uh, from from the, the again the book I read, "Our Vampires Ourselves" by Nina Auerbach, which is a critical study of vampire fiction from its inception all the way into like the nineties. Wait, her name is um, Nina. Yes, Nina, not Mina. Yeah, N-I-N-A. but but Nina is it's, listen in in I know Nosferatu. <laughs> hey, listen. <laughs> That's good stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, anyway. So, yeah. So, the, the, the general approach of the book uh, is not, I think, explicitly to do feminist critique of this genre, but certainly I think there's a lot uh, in the genre, especially in its later years in vampire fiction, that's very much about the female experience. But, like, so Victorian vampire stories uh, basically are stories of, like, men who have, like, strange attraction to each other, right? Like, Victorian vampire stories are basically romantic love stories uh, that do not have any sex in them. It's like a man who's like, I'm so weirdly attracted to this other man, you know, and he like has this spell over me and like I, he, he drinks life from me and right. Um, and there's not really a lot of like the horror kind of tropes uh, yeah. that you see later in, in the genre. 
Uh, and then Dracula is kind of the innovator that really creates this very, um, very removed, very hetero uh, uh, love kind of uh, story, right? Uh, and Carmilla, the story that this is adapted from, sits somewhere in this very weird place in between where it takes the idea of, um, of basically homosexual uh, affinity, passion, love, connection, intimacy, uh, and uh, finds a place where that would be comfortable, right? Because you couldn't do that with two men. Uh, Carmilla does it with two women, right? It's a story mm -hmm. about two women that actually can be depicted as this intimate with each other in a way the Victorian literature didn't allow men to be depicted as that intimate with each other. Uh, but anyway, um, the reason that this is notable is the, the film, Vampire, uh, has no intimacy in it. Right. It right. is totally like stayed, disconnected, non-intimate. We, like we barely know who any of these people are. True. The only thing they're feeling is like, you know, um, lamentable, like uh, fear of dying at Wild Damned or right. buried alive, right? Like, uh, whereas vampire fiction in a very real sense, especially in the Victorian era, was all about like, you know, the Twilight is such a good example of what vampire fiction is about, which is like strange attraction that is like very dangerous, uh, strange being like a euphemism for homosexual in the Victorian era, right? Yeah. Anyway, so 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 this movie is really notable for totally washing out anything right. that is vampire-ish of the, the original vampire right. story because all of that like emotional and physical intimacy is gone. The woman who is the like the vampire... She's in the same room as as Leone, like once maybe, and I don't know that we ever really see them like emotionally connecting to each other the way that you'd expect them to right. in vampire fiction, right. and that that is shown also in the way that the film is presented, in that we're kind of watching this dreamscape unfold, but we never really feel like we're inhabiting these emotional stories between these characters, which is like a for better or worse kind of situation, right? Uh, for better because it creates that dreamy feeling that Dreyer's, right. Dreyer's certainly going for, um, but worse in that you don't, it can never feel like the kind of popcorn-y movie-going experience right, right. that you might want from a movie like this, because you're never going to be able like wrapped up and like, oh, what's going to happen to Leone? It's like, I don't fucking care. Like, I, I barely know who she is. Right? Yeah, like, yeah, who, exactly. who now? What, what's the name, of, the name of what? Wait, what? Who? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, and so what you're discussing about it not being a popcorn movie is in some ways a, uh, a result of the way that they've adapted this vampire right. story right. and is also extremely notable because it's very rare to have a vampire story where you just don't care <laughs> right, about right, like, right. any of the people involved. Well, and, 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 and that's what makes it to a certain extent, right? It takes it from being a I, I sort of like air quoted horror earlier in the sense that it takes it from being like, because part of that, that intimacy and that attraction is what lends those movies that sense of fear, right? Like you're like, mm -hmm. what's going to happen to these people that I've, I've, I care about and, and I want to know what's going to happen to them here. It, it's sort of ephemeral and, and, and makes it haunting instead, instead of being a horror, it's more like it, 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 it yeah, it's ghostly, right? Like you're like, you, it has a certainly a feel of being like you're kind of like I, 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 I'm trying to think of a of another example of something that I've seen like this and it's a little bit hard, but like you certainly inhabit the feeling of being in, in, in sort of a haunted place, right? Like because you can't interact with the people like you are you are haunted by in part by the fact that like it's that sort of like um, everything is sort of intangible, right? You as an audience member also can't touch 
the right. film and the film no one in the film seems to be able to interact with each other really either yeah. right our main character <laughs> yeah. essentially just wafts from place wanders to place through. and has yeah. and yeah. and even has it's a like sort Russian of, arc he right. just sort of wanders through <laughs> right. the set dressing of, right, right? Yeah. And yeah. he's got, and he's got a, and, and it's really fascinating because at first I was kind of off put by it, but I got, I grew to love the fact that like his gait and his mannerism even sort of seemed to like depict that. It's like he's almost a ghost in and of himself even before he becomes a dream ghost, right? He's just sort of like, he has this really weird like lurching gait despite being ostensibly a living human. And like he right. lurches into a room, things happen, and he lurches out of that room to another room. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, well, and I think, Adam, we might have watched the same video behind the scenes thing, right? And I noticed this during the movie, and the, the commentator actually talked about it, that uh, there are moments where he will, like, lurch into a scene, the camera will move around, and he'll be in a totally unexpected place somewhere else right, inside right, of the scene. Right, right, right. Right? Like, um, you know, uh, the first time that I had the reaction during the movie is when he, like, walked into, I think it's the, uh, the church, uh, and... You know, he like comes up the stairs and then the camera sort of shows the coffin and then comes back to him and he's already like running out the door. Yeah, right, down right, the hall. Right. Yeah, and that is yeah. like, well, that is such a modern filmmaking technique. Right. That is just like, that feels so modern to me, right? This like, um, you know, a long take where a character kind of moves through it and is not visible the whole time feels like extremely like modern to me. Uh, the documentary expressed it as like maybe a limitation of budget because they had like they couldn't shoot on a film stage, sound stage, because they were filming in a house. They kind of couldn't put the camera on a wider shot to show that stuff, um, and so you know maybe Dreyer accidentally yeah. maybe did these kinds of things. Um, but anyway, so that contributes to the feeling certainly of like you know we're kind of in a place and he's also in a place and we're right. sort of floating through the same right. scenes together. But <laughs> another very interesting aspect of that is that it happens not, uh, the whole sequence where he's looking at his own body being buried is, is mm. its own aspect of that. But when he first sees the coffin and uh, there's uh, another one mentioned in that, that documentary piece, it talks about him approaching one of the buildings. I can't remember which one. Uh, it was the inn at the, the beginning. Inn, yeah. <clears throat> but they're both, they start out as point of view shots. And then as we pan across, he suddenly like walks into the frame. <laughs> right, or he's right. completely elsewhere. Yeah. And it, it really, you know, it's the same sort of disconnectedness of, of soul and, and being that is represented in that entire <laughs> sequence of, right. of him leaving his body quite, quite literally. Um, but also in how the shadows are presented the the shadow creatures uh dancing in the in the one room walking in the water reflected in the water but not not above the water uh and you know it's all this mysterious portal imagery uh that's not necessarily tied to the whole vampire thing popularly right. even at the time but it's all portrayed very interestingly. And to uh, to hear that documentary talk about it, all those shadow shots are not composite shots. It's really a body double walking in front of a bright light uh, behind the camera, you know, as uh, as he's coming, like the where the soldier's shadow rejoins right, him. Right, right. Right? Um, which is just a phenomenal 
zero dollar budget uh, special effect <laughs> right. too. Right? It's just amazing. It looks yeah. so good. It right. is it is yeah. wild. The I, like, shadow I, stuff looks yeah. so good in this. It's all just so like chilling and weird and yeah. ghostly. It looks so good. <laughs> yeah, it, it it's it's fucking wild because like yeah, <laughs> like obviously the the soldier one is the one that is like the, is the sort of like showstopper in a lot of ways, right? Right. But then right. like the guy gets shot by a basically a shadow gun, which is <laughs> right, pretty yeah. wild. It, it's it's there's yeah. a lot of really neat stuff. It's really happening. good. But yeah, th- that's why I think the mind sort of races at what would a remake of this look like, right? right like yeah. You know, like that that motif of sort of like a shadow world that is moving around and like writhing right under our feet and is totally in control of some demon that secretly controls this town. That's like really compelling and looks really, really cool in some of these sequences. Um, you know, the, the sad fact is if we did get like a remake of oh, a movie like this, that would awful. be like thousands of soldiers, <laughs> yeah. and, like, you know, the, yeah. the shadows, it would, yeah, like, you would, like, you would definitely you know, lose the diesel haunt. Thing, you would right? lose. Yeah. The, Cause <laughs> the shadows play into the sort of haunted feel that we get in from yeah. the sort of style of the movie, right? Where there's not that many care- people and, the, and, and yeah. you're just moving around and, and there's no way they could do that. Like they're just, I, you could, it would have, it would have to just be another art film. Right. And so, and 100%. by its nature, it would not be like a real. It would be a remake, but it would be, it would be like a art homage to this piece of art because, like, you couldn't. You're not going to make a blockbuster yeah. version of this that is not just absolutely god awful. Like, <laughs> yeah, it would be a well, remake that adds nothing, right? right? right. It would be kind right. of cool right. to see right. what a modern filmmaker would do with some of these techniques, but at the same time, it wouldn't really add anything, right? right? right. Like, I don't know that you could like do what this movie did in a better way with modern technology. No, you know? no, it's you like... would you would essentially just be doing it so that it could be like higher quality, almost. Yeah, that's right. I mean, <laughs> that being said, like higher resolution, like, yeah. quote unquote. Yeah. Right, <laughs> Guillermo del Toro could probably do something sure. pretty fucking crazy right. with it and it would be very interesting to watch but then again it would just be his thing because like you know he already does hauntingly strange right. things he, like, you know already I mean? like, influenced by this movie and uh, right exactly yeah. so he he's doesn't need to because he's already that, made so. those movies <laughs> like, already he's been making those movies for a while you know it's, it's unnecessary um yeah so uh, there's one a, of the one of the phrases that uh, Auerbach uses in in her book is that the the women in this movie uh, seem to I think the, the phrase is come alive under the gaze of men right yeah and uh, to a certain extent that's like uh, really interesting to think about when it's one of the the first canonical film adaptations of the story about sort of a, an affinity between two women uh, that it is so purposely the story of. You know, I think the subtitle is like the strange adventures of Alan Gray or whatever. Yeah, right? yeah, like, no, yeah, the the dreams of Alan Gray. Yeah, yeah, whatever yeah, it yeah. is. But you know, it's just so transparently about this guy, right? Even though the story that it's adapting, like the the guys are not important, right? It's it's very much right. about this very powerful and ancient female vampire and her affinity with the the woman who lives yeah. in this household. It's like, and and so uh, to a certain extent, right? Um, it's like very visible on screen, you know, that uh, the, the way that the camera moves around really reinforces this idea that we are kind of like watching both through the eyes of this man and also watching the actions of this man. Uh, there aren't a lot of moments where we get that feeling of we are seeing something that the man is not a part of. Uh, and in fact, one of the, the best moments in the whole movie is a scene that does not have him in it in any way whatsoever. When uh, Leone is doing the weird, like turning her head and making that <laughs> face. Oh, yeah, yeah, where, yeah. Like, 
like yeah. absolutely compelling, right. uh, cool looking, very freaky acting by that woman. Um, but mostly this movie is not interested in anything that doesn't directly involve our man, our protagonist. And in a lot of ways, even though the movie doesn't really do a, lo- a lot to have us sit in his shoes, we, he certainly is like, um, we are only identifying with him, if anybody, right. in this movie. And, and yeah, and at best, he is an excuse to move the camera to a new place. Yeah, possibly. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah. Like, that's a I good mean, way of But you that. are right. He is the only... He is. <laughs> He is certainly the only thing that the movie is interested people-wise, really. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I, uh, an interesting thing I thought about that I, I had to watch this movie multiple times. Is we discussed before, um, before the podcast started because of technical issues. But uh, my first watching, I didn't notice a lot of the sort of uh, things about it. Right. Um, when her sister, when Leone's sister disappears, I, I never really put two and two together. But they like because again I was watching in a really horrible haphazard manner, and like they come back into the room and they do the same spin around shot and she's just gone from the scene. But like in a film, normally I would expect them to highlight that fact by like pausing there, but the film doesn't do that. It just spins around the room before and she's sitting on the couch. They spin around the room later after he leaves and he comes back and she's not on the couch. But it doesn't like stop to let you know that that's a thing you're supposed to pay attention to. And I'm like, right. It's yeah, man. I got from that scene. I got a sort of it follows vibe. It follows does this move where it's not like cutting to the monster all the time. It's actually cutting to the same scene two or three times, and you realize something's coming towards the camera, right? Like so, I I think about the the sort of. the um, language of it follows the movie a lot. And I think that like that very subtle, like something's different about this scene from the last time you saw it is a very powerful tool. But of course it follows makes, uh, I think more, more, <laughs> more uh, concrete use of it. Right. Well, yeah, it's I a mean, monster this, yeah. approaching from the distance than it is like a woman who was here is not now. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, it's, it, it very much becomes like one of those like uh, highlights magazine sort of things is like, what's missing right. from this Spot image? the difference. You saw, <laughs> five, <laughs> you saw five and a half or ten, six minutes ago. Uh, Right, that but I do only, appreciate yeah, the yeah. the restraint of not being like you know doing like a uh, a, a smash cut to like a zoomed in <laughs> right like, of the like, chair. Oh God, or there's something. nobody yeah, in this seat yeah. or whatever, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of highlights magazine uh, and uh, and what Stephen said about uh, Gray, our main character, it's also interesting that he slowly becomes more of a goofus. And we get a third Absolutely. act gallant yeah. who we really hadn't been paying attention to yeah. at all right. prior. <laughs> you know, he Gray is introduced as the expert, the student of the supernatural elements, and then he just spends his entire time amazed that they're happening with no reference to any sort of expertise or you know, he's not scared off by them. So I guess that's an indication that he has experienced at least so, read books about right. this stuff, but <laughs> right. then, but then the vampires actually defeated uh, by the by the servant. He reads the book. He figures out who the vampire is. He figures out where she's buried. He goes to her grave, and Gray just happens upon him there. It's like, okay, yeah. I'll help out. <laughs> so I I have one reading of that personally that is that is contrarian just for fun's sake, more than <laughs> sure. anything else. You are absolutely right, uh, but. Weirdly enough, because of something I read when I was getting ready to watch the movie, and I don't remember what it was. It might be the Criterion description or something. In my mind, I kind of imagined that Gray conjures this into existence because of his obsessive reading of this kind of text. 
that like mm. that that he sort of uh like um sort of like his his obsession with because like the book is is me is precisely what is happening it's not right. like <laughs> it's not like he reads the book and it's pretty similar as well i mean this could be it too i mean the servant it's exactly what is fucking happening yeah so like i in my mind i sort of took it a step and was like so we have this is the dream of alan gray which is I think supposed to be a reference, obviously, to when he sleeps, like sleep ghost astral projects his body right. to find the answer to what's happening. But um, the other alternative reading of that is that that's a, a, a dream inside of a dream and that he's essentially just conjured this into existence whole cloth from his reading because the book is identical to what's happening. It's just, it's a weird idea right. I had because like, well, I think like one of the descriptions of the book, the movie describes it as like, a man overly obsessed with uh, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, okay. Sure, like maybe this is it. Maybe this is the dream. This whole thing is just the dream of Alan Gray. Um, but he also has so. a dream in the first act, too. You know, when he first gets yeah. to the inn, he, he falls asleep, he has a weird dream, and then he's awoken uh, by the, right. uh, the, dad. the dad coming, right? Well, I mean, but if we can have so, one I, dream inside the dream, we can have as well, many no, dreams no, inside I, the dreams as we I'm, want. I'm yeah, saying, I don't yeah. disagree with you. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think your take is like I, I, uh, an interesting one. I don't, I don't know, know that, that it's that's like, real. I, it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So but it's, but I think it's I think it may be related to some of the intentional stuff in the movie, which is you know, in a lot of ways, you one way of seeing this in maybe like a conventional plotting kind of sense is like an experienced paranormal investigator comes to investigate this, situ- not even to investigate the situation. He accidentally finds himself in a situation right. that is well beyond his depth. And while he is lost in like the maze of the vampires kind of trickery, right. And like, he's like ghosting around and doesn't know what he's doing. Somebody else, one of the local townspeople has to like bring him out of it. And that's not too different from the tropes you'll see in movies like The Conjuring or whatever, right? right? right Which right. is like mm-hmm. the experienced paranormal investigators have finally gone in too far and somebody else has to like, you know, help jiggle them out who's like part of the investigative team. Um, mm-hmm. So in a certain sense, that's a very like adventure story kind of trope, yeah. you know, right, right. of like, you know, he's he's really under the thrall and it takes somebody else to help bring him out of it. So, right. Right. You know, yeah. I, I actually really appreciated that as like a, a plot element. Right. <laughs> no. Know? Yeah. I liked it a lot. And I, I my thought was, is like you, got, you kind of like I can't help myself, but like maybe it's just because I've watched way too many bad mystery like detective movies. But then like my mind is like, well, I mean is Agatha Christie the reason why there are so many murders going on all the time? Like kind of <laughs> feeling is like, you know, like the, is she making this happen? Is Alan Gray in some way responsible for the fact that there's no, suddenly a true. fucking vampire in this town that I guess was <laughs> right. probably fine before he showed up. I right. don't know. If is Angela Lansbury, the murderer, yeah. Yeah, why right. else would there be so many murders <laughs> right. in that small town? Angela right. Lansbury. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I am interested in one particular break from, uh, from vampire mythos that uh, that this movie does that sort of inflects uh, interpretation if there is anything to interpret here. And the fact that our vampire, uh, Marguerite Chopin, she's got a last name first off. It's weird enough, yeah. but... Uh, Neat. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, so much of Victorian literature around vampires uh, and portrayals of, say, Dracula... Uh, are this uh, the aristocracy? There's a very there's a very uh, blatant easy read of 
uh, of vampirism as as a, the aristocracy, the the upper class sucking off of uh, the lower classes. Uh, this is, I mean, she might be a village elder, but there's no indication that she like owns any of the manor houses. Like, I mean, did who, you see her kick ass necklace though? I mean, come on, <laughs> it is a pretty kick ass necklace. That's true, but the the guy who owns the biggest house we we see is. Uh, I guess one of the good guys, you know, he's not one of the bad yeah. guys. Uh, you know, she's just this, this old crone. Uh, and, and the doctor, the town doctor is her, uh, her main henchman. Right. So it's, if it's saying something, it's saying something very different. Um, and that's where, you know, one of the essays focuses on interpretation, um, to a certain extent, it doesn't, completely focus on interpretation but one of the one of the interpretations of this film that gets thrown out is autobiographical uh and dreyer's mother uh committed suicide by eating phosphorus matches when he was two years Jesus. old um and there's a lot of names from like her uh her last name was was josephson or something to that extent but the uh one of the one of the henchmen's name is Joseph, and uh, there's there's a little more tenuous name connection that the essay mentions as tenuous, citing someone else's work. Uh, but it's interesting uh, to have to have this mysterious old woman woman enthralling the entire area, and and what that might say about Dreyer's. You know, his his mother died when he was very young, right? He doesn't know about her, but it might, you know, speculation about her might be guiding a lot of his subconsciousness, right? Um, and obviously that's what that gets into, and it's beyond what we can read into this movie without being drier. Um, uh, <laughs> but beyond that, it is still interesting that this... Social, <laughs> sociologically wise, this is a very different vampire than other vampires too. Uh, not just uh, you know economic levels, uh, gender, as we've already talked about, um, and age. You know, uh, old vampires are not something that pops up all right. that often. Is that true though? I so now, I, I I don't know I don't know a lot about what you're saying, right? Because I, I this, the book that I that I read from is mostly not about you know class consciousness and right. things like right. But but in my experience and from like what I have read about this vampire history, vampire depiction history seems replete with like it's the aristocracy feeding on the aristocracy, right? Oh, and, that's like, it's true. not, um, and also it's usually older and especially in the dracula kind of vein ageless very old uh right. vampires uh and either that or sexy right and i think that's like kind <laughs> yeah. of one of the distinctions between yeah. the victorian literature that came before this and carmilla itself um versus you know like nosferatu is like a distinction between um an old weirdo vampire <laughs> versus like an uh, like affinity right. is so core yeah. to vampire literature that that you know, you usually that's Dracula is like a break from that in that in that it's kind of there's no affinity. He's yeah. a weirdo. People I guess, are, are not attracted to it. I guess to my to what I say there, I guess I'm thinking more film de de depictations 
throughout mm-hmm. film history less than than literature because I think you're accurate to that. There is a difference between ageless and actually portrayed as old, certainly. Yeah. Um, and of course, uh, you know, Gary Oldman in in Bram Stoker's Dracula uh, starts off as an old man uh, and then right. and then de ages with his first feeding on screen, right? Uh, and and it is the feeding that keeps him as young and beautiful, um, as young and yeah. beautiful as Gary Oldman ever was, I'm sure. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> With a name like that, yes. um, <laughs> Gary Oldman. Yeah. But uh, yeah. But yeah. But at the same I mean, time, our vampire is not even the central character here. <laughs> so right. Like, right. And, so and I think that's r- really the right. right. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing that makes this film kind of hard to analyze within sort of like the the, <laughs> right. the canon of vampire depictions, right? Is that, um, you know, it's there. Uh, it's atypical for vampire movies, but not necessarily in a way that's like, oh, it's commenting on vampire right. movies. It's like it doesn't need to be a vampire movie. Right? Yeah, I know, right? Uh, yeah, and I, I think it's you know it, you see this with um, mostly with like bad bad B movies, but this movie also had this thing where its name was changed a bunch, and vampires were not part of the name <laughs> every time <laughs> right. because it wasn't necessarily a vampire movie in like spirit, uh, and that that ends up making more sense when you think about what it has washed out of of the Carmilla story has washed it out of being a vampire story right. you know like that intimacy the affinity is is gone and that's so core to the way that vampires worked uh in in Carmilla and in all of other Victorian literature yeah what I, what I would add to that is that um interestingly enough what what I think is more sort of a in that same vein of thought about the the sort of quote unquote vampire we have in this film is that it, while it it doesn't fit into the sort of uh like sort of any of those typical vampire sort of tropes uh from any of those periods what it could fit into is is instead a much older what I would argue is probably a much older sort of um sort of pre or proto vampire type thing which is which is the terrifying old lady who causes yeah. destruction in a place, Witches. right? A, a sort of evil yeah. eye yeah. sort of thing, right? Yeah. It very much plays into an yeah. evil eye story. And things that like evil eye stories, oftentimes the person casting the evil eye is just the final step of the journey, right? If you're if you're talking like if you're talking about those old like very, very old adventure stories, the hero gets to the evil eye caster and then the story is fucking over. That is it. Right. That's the end. They've done it. All it takes is to get to them. If you have survived the journey to them, you have right. done thus the adventure. They're not going to put up like you know in modern interpretations. Right. I mean, like of those kind of film or those kind of stories in film, they have a big battle at the end, right? But in the stories themselves, the adventurer finally gets through the obstacles that have been put in their place. They get there, and it's fucking done. And to me, that sort of feels like that's what this is, and it's. You could just call her a you could call her a witch or you could call her like the a, crone, a crone or a seer or something, and it would work just fine. Because or all Beowulf's the, mom right, or whatever, right, exactly, right. whatever name you want to choose. Mom, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> and and all you're trying to do is get there. And or Grendel's like, mom, sorry, yeah. Beowulf's. Yeah, and, and so it, it's it's a it's a very. Um, I feel like in that sense, it's maybe playing into a much older type of story. Yeah. And I don't know. You're right that vampire doesn't need to be on here because you're just using vampire as a sort of cipher for any of those kind of stories. Right. Um, right. So. And even, you know, the 
in as much as it's an action sequence, the the action of defeating these evil powers isn't even the murder of the vampire, right? That's actually right. very very background and done. <laughs> right. Well, that, done but in that's like those are, that's like those stories. <laughs> in a lot of those yeah. stories in old old adventure right. stories like that, it literally the last like few lines of the stories will be like and then he cut off her head and he came back and there was a party. <laughs> and that's the whole fucking right. end of the story. It's like you just spent fucking uh, 250 pages telling me a story about this adventure and then he cut off his head right. and he went home. We uh, have we have kind of much more it. energy portraying the death of the doctor than we have portraying the death right. of the vampire. Um, Certainly, yeah. But it's also the same character. It's the same, the servant. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. you know, Gray comes to, helps stake the vampire, and then gets on a boat with the sister. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And is out right. of the action for the rest of the I act. Know. Gray is nothing. <laughs> right? Gray is nothing right. in this movie. It's so weird. It's... um. In a, in a very real sense, this is two movies, and one of them is like an art house, like into the psyche exploration of this paranormal investigator, and the other one is kind of an adventure story about like an old witch yeah. who's terrorizing a town, right. and is and is right, and they're they're linked, and in a lot of ways, that's maybe what makes this so compelling to watch. I mean, I think this movie is right. really excellent, and I really enjoyed it because it really does wed those things together. But there is that lingering feeling of, you know, I wish that there was more harmony between these two elements. Yeah. Right. You know, I, I like the, the sight of him, like finally escaping into that beautiful clearing, you know, at the end of the movie, it's really beautiful. And also there's that almost like goofy adventure story kind of moment of like the witch's face appearing in the window and like the doctor yeah. being like, Oh no, oh. I'm fucked now. What you this, know, it's like very, <laughs> what this is ideologically, uh, a remake has already been made. It's big trouble in little China. The, the big action <laughs> adventurer who, who is our point of view character rolls in to a situation that is ongoing. And it's, it's one of the guys he meets <laughs> while he's there. That actually defeats the ongoing evil, huh. uh, and and then we leave with the main character who's all like, "Hey, I saved the day." Um, not right. that he overtly does that here, but we still end on uh, <coughs> him, uh, you know, rescuing the girl uh, instead of the uh, the manservant reaping any benefits from saving the city, right? right? Well, I also kept thinking about parallels between this and The Wicker Man, which is something I saw for the first time uh, oh. earlier this year, not too long ago, uh, which also starts with like an investigator arriving in a weirdo place, being received kind of coldly, uh, seeing that things are weird there. Uh, and then, I don't. have you seen The Wicker Man either of you? I have. The original? I have seen I have parts no, of the I have original. not seen I have the, not seen original. All of the I have original. I have only ever I, seen the oh. Nicolas Cage version of The yeah. Wicker Man. <laughs> Uh, let me tell you, the Nicolas Cage version is bad, but, I, you know, uh, you know how it ends, yeah. right? So uh, there's not a lot of, like, it's not a spoiler to say. Um, you know, uh, the striking, lasting image of the Wicker Man at the end of that movie is a guy screaming to his god to save him as be he's being sacrificed by pagans. And the movie does not let up. Yeah. It does not, like, and they lived happily ever after. And and Gray sailed into the clearing with the woman, uh, and so in a lot of ways, right? Like I think Wicker Man's an interesting, um, uh, like what really would happen, <laughs> you know? Like if if the paranormal investigator arrives in a remote town that's been overrun by some sort of evil ideology, right? Um, 
the the investigator would be absolutely murdered and sacrificed in favor of the ideology. Right. Uh, so anyway, I would recommend watching that movie, and it's also like really visually striking, very unsettling, very good, lots of good acting. Right, it has its flaws, of course. Um, but yeah, anyway, I think that um, uh, there are ways in which very um, simplistic storytelling kind of tropes uh, in the end win out in this movie, and that's how you end up with that like. You know, he overcomes his like mental anguish and sails into the sunset and like, you know, anyway. Well, there's there's also a an interpretive aspect that his ending isn't necessarily good. We can read it as good, but he's lost on the water with her, having having rescued her from direct evil, but not not out of the out of the fog, so to speak, yet. Uh someone guides him on to shore. And they get out of the boat, but then they're just lost in the woods, right? Uh, and yeah, it's a bright <laughs> clearing. Uh, Fair enough. <laughs> but they're not back to civilization, and where are they? You know, it's an ending that suggests that maybe there's another few scenes that didn't get shot because they were out of money or something. The the mm-hmm. financial aspects of this movie are very very key to a lot of what's going on. The star. That's true. <laughs> The guy who plays Gray. Underestimate that. Yeah. Yeah. The guy who plays Gray, uh, under the name Julian West, is actually Nicholas de Gunsberg, uh, who is the guy who financed the movie. Uh, he uh, he was the in order to star in in order to star in it is the language used in (laughs) some of the materials about the movie. Right. so, you know, uh, on the one hand, it might be his influence to say, I need to have an end that shows I'm not dead. Uh, but on the other hand, it may just be that they there's another scene that wasn't shot or right. another act that wasn't shot, really. Uh, Could be. There's a lot of possibilities there. Uh, and the ending as it exists doesn't really make sense, but it's a movie that is entirely shot in dream logic, so it's not—it's not a problem right. that it doesn't make right. sense. But with literal pieces of gauze <laughs> held three feet in front of the camera, right? right. <laughs> yeah. So well, yeah. I mean, it is a problem that it doesn't make sense because it bombs. But like, <laughs> right, right, right. Like it's a, it is actually a problem. But like, I, I know what you mean, right? Logically, stop. consistently within the movie, there is very yeah. little consistency inside the movie, uh, it, logically. But yeah, it, it people don't like it because. Yeah, I mean, I also get why people didn't like it, right? Yeah. Like, it makes sense that people are like, what the fuck was that? Yeah. Like, you know, you, you go to the movie, and, like, you know, like, you there's we've been through this before with other films where you're like, you walk into a movie, like, you have to put yourself in the position of the people who went to see the movie as well as people who watch it, like, you know, nearly 100 years later, right? Where it's like... Yeah, if you're the person who like goes out to the movie, which presumably is not something you do literally every day, right? You're like you decided to go to the movie, you know, because it's a special thing and you go to see this film and it's it's called Vampire Vampire and you're like, "Okay, like this is promising. Like things are go this is going places." Um it was it's literally Dracula came out last year, right? Like you're like, "Okay, I'm here." And then you yeah. get in there and this is what you watch, you're going to be like, Okay, right. That yeah. was interesting. And then you talk about yeah. it on the walk home or whatever, right? Yeah. There's also. I mean, not to get to up, up our own asses about like uh, cultural experiences of society or whatever, but I do. I do think a lot about how Shakespeare plays were something that like 
poor people went to and went to a lot, you know, right. and there were like a, like everybody was talking about them. Right. And that makes Shakespeare plays more similar to like modern television than the Godfather or right, whatever, right, right? right? Or or Casablanca, right? Because those, as you're saying, Pat, are like uh, very like austere. Kind of you don't go very often. Um, you may not think of films like it. Might not make sense to think of films like this as belonging to pop culture, uh, and maybe makes more sense to think of them as belonging to like a tradition of art. Right. Whereas Shakespeare is much yeah. definitely pop culture, not art. Right. It's like right. designed to be consumed en masse uh, by a lot of people of a lot of different backgrounds. And if you think of this as in a pop culture kind of way, it's not really a success. Right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I think I think Dreyer wanted this to be a success. And I think right. the fact that it yeah. wasn't a success is why he starts making the more austere films moving forward. There's well, if I'm not. <laughs> if, right. if I'm not yeah, going to make money, so, yeah. I might as well make the art if I want to make. People are going to demand right. their money back and yeah. riot after I see it. I may as well make <laughs> right. something. Right. I, I can at least get right. a reputation for being a guy who makes austere films that like people right. go to because they're art, right? Like, because then you don't yeah, have yeah. to like, yeah. Even the source material is 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 this weird because he doesn't really use it, but they still talk about it being an adaptation. But they, right. but then in that manner, they specifically picked something that is. Uh, out of copyright, like the 1931 Dracula got sued by Dracula's rights holders right. uh, right. because right. the book was still in copyright. Uh, so he picked he picked something that they weren't going to license <laughs> and didn't need to license, right. and named it as the as the piece of classic vampire literature that apparently people are familiar with to try and get butts right. in the seats, right? Right, but then doesn't use any, well, basically any of it, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, right, it's, it's, yeah. Well, and I think that's you know, I, again, without getting too far down that <laughs> rabbit hole, I think there is there are some people who get way too excited about the distinction between film versus movies and like art versus entertainment or whatever, right? And that's not, um, to me, right? Like the goals of a film to uh, achieve uh, appeal to a mass audience and achieve certain kinds of narrative goals. Right. It's just a different set of goals than like create a dreamlike right. experience where right. people are enraptured by the visuals on the screen is like a very different thing than make people feel like they're there in the action and like are going along with our main characters on their adventure. Those are just two different ways of achieving your goals. And I think the latter we associate with pop cultural cinema and the former we associate with like art house cinema. I, I don't want any of your listeners to think that I'm one of those people who is like, well, but it's not a film. It's just right. a movie. You know, they're all movies, yeah. right? They just all kind of have slightly different narrative goals. And the narrative goals of this one match better uh, with like the narrative goals you'd expect from, as as we're describing, yeah. maybe some of Dreyer's, Dreyer's later and, films. And certainly so. moving forward, Dreyer's other work, his more austere work, are still adaptations of popular stage plays. By and large, right. Right? right. So he's yeah. still right. he's still working from popular material. He's not he's not just making whatever he wants to make. You know, he's not a guy who wrote a lot of original scripts. It seems like, uh, you know, he he worked from other people's plays. This is probably the closest to a completed whole cloth thing of what we've seen. Uh, and even the all of the dialogue in the Passion of Joan of Arc was taken from the actual transcripts of the of the trials. Right. So, mm. uh, it's not, uh, this really is one of the, the few chances we have of, of seeing his, his full creativity. Not, not to say that 
working from a source material and adapting it creatively is a less less creative work than writing something completely right from the start right i don't want to i don't want to try and make that distinction either because i don't believe in right. that distinction <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but but it is interesting that this is one of the one of the works where you know it's not <laughs> it is ostensibly based on a source material but it's not actually based right really yeah on it's source basically material. A, it also has yeah. like no words in it right compared to all those other things right, right. like right. like the, the one where he's like i'm gonna write a screenplay and it's like he doesn't write anything, <laughs> right? You know. Well, I mean, like, just, it, presumably, you know. I'm gonna. I guess maybe he wrote all those things, th- those title cards, mm-hmm. as like the screen. Sure. The screenplay is just a novel that he wrote in his free time, or <laughs> like yeah. I don't know. Um, well, but I think that's uh, again another holdover of the fact that this was written in the very silent film style. Right, absolutely, that's yeah. where all the quote-unquote dialogue right, all the writing right. would be is in those right. title cards so it's not you know it, uh it is interesting to think of this as a silent film that for some reason has some <laughs> right. some sounds in it right yeah somebody <laughs> act, you know somebody decided to record some audio for it. yeah and there's a lot yeah, of exactly. films of this time that are shot with <laughs> yes the, yeah we've encountered the ideals before, of yeah. a silent film that just mm. throw some sound in like yeah. over half of m is like that really yeah. mm, that's true uh, yeah. yeah yeah that is true um, and and, I, and that's what honestly that is what kind of makes it such an interesting time to watch movies for from is that like you get to watch it it's really fascinating to watch an art form literally in front of your eyes adapt to a new technology like yeah <laughs> essentially live right like you like okay like right. oh 1932 or 19 you know this this really specific range where we get to watch like movies that like maybe somebody started writing when there were no sound movies or or when they were so rare as to not be considered significant. And then I'd be like, well, I mean, we'll just make some of this stuff that I wrote up for title cards into into dialogue that somebody says. Like, yeah, Grace is what, like, maybe, like, like less than 50 words, right? I think. For sure, right? Right. It's it's kind of wild. A very interesting thing that then Dreyer does is the use of sound effects in it. You know, and right. the adding of the right. dog barking and the children and the murmurs of the other hotel guests right. when Gray arrives at the inn. And, you know, it's. Well, and that's. He the, uses but I everything think that that make, in favor right. of the atmosphere he's trying to. Create. Right. That's what I was right. going to say. That's is right. that that makes so much sense, though, from what we're seeing from Dreyer at this time with this is that, like, I mean, like the atmosphere is what he's going for. And all that works perfectly to build that atmosphere. Right. Like it's. The the audio is pretty fucking creepy, uh, and pissed my dog off real bad, <laughs> real real bad. She was hunting. My cat didn't like it either. Uh, was hunting <laughs> desperately for whatever those fucking monkeys or whatever were, like yeah. running yeah. all over the house, just barking out every window, being like, "I've got to scare whatever this is away. It's got to go." See, and then I had a, to watch the movie a good again film for animals. <laughs> no, yeah. And so then I had to do it to the poor dog again, like two hours later, because of the, the the situation I watched it. And so uh, she was having God. a bad day. Get some headphones. Uh, uh, I don't like <laughs> headphones. I, 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 uh, I let you know that's something. I hate headphones. 
I uh, I also think some about how when we look back at this era of film that we're like living through right now, there's going to be people who are going to like scholars a hundred years from now who are going to be like, well, but these writers didn't know if they're writing for television or movies, and so yeah. you can see yeah. so many movies that look like TV shows, right? right. And, like or whatever it might be, you know, like you'll hear that about Marvel movies in the future, which right. is like, well, this was basically a television show that took place over the course of ten years, you know. Uh, right. Anyway, so I, yeah. I am interested. Yeah, in, no, it's for not sure. Necessarily the same kind of technical difference but certainly in like a narrative structure kind of way people are going to look back on this as like finally the like the era of like serialized Sherlock Holmes novels Sherlock Holmes novels like comes to the visual medium because now it's fast enough to make them you know right. and like that anyway so yeah. I, I'm also interested to think about you know yeah, it, what it, will we say on the the equivalent of this podcast in a hundred years that's like but it is so interesting to see what must be sort of comic book writers making movies <laughs> right know, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> I, I I can only hope we're heads in a jar doing that this podcast on <laughs> this years from now and be like Certainly, when the they Criterion put, will still be. Yeah, when they those. put Winter Soldier into the Criterion <laughs> yeah, absolutely. collection, spying number ten thousand five hundred, <laughs> yeah. whatever. And, and Adam, I are, Adam and I are still somehow exactly twelve hundred films away from the end of the Criterion collection. Yeah. <laughs> always, always, forever. It's going to be forever. Uh, I uh, I really love how dismissive the original New York Times critic at the Berlin premiere was of this quoting from Wikipedia, whatever you think of director Charles Theodore Dreyer, there's no denying he is different. He does things that make people talk about him. You may find the films ridiculous, but you won't forget them. Although in many ways, vampire was one of the worst films I had ever attended. There were some scenes in it that gripped with brutal directness. Like he's, he just really, really wants you to know that he hates this man and his work. Right. But but maybe there was something good about it. Right. Uh, the other New York Times quoted is on the Paris Review and talks about how everyone was either uh, wrapped in it or uh, dying of hysterical laughter the entire time. <laughs> so that's another thing that I kind of noticed about this. A lot of the... the this This happens especially with like Dracula and, and vampire tropes, a lot of it has become comedic in effect. Right. Especially the Bela Lugosi Dracula kind of like accent and mannerisms, etc., are just so comedic. And in a, to a certain extent, like, you know, uh, a, a man walking into a mysterious room and like a skull on the table, like turning to look at him. Right, right. It's like such a comedic cartoonish moment. Yeah. And that's, uh, and I don't know how it would have read at the time, but certainly to me when I saw that, I was like, okay, come on. Well, <laughs> it, hey, like, clearly some people do in a, laughed an at SNL it. sketch. Or, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's what it makes me wonder if other people were like, you know, is this a joke? Well, but <laughs> I think to see, a certain I think that's extent, always those, those tropes really get codified in like the hammer horror era. Right. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. But, but at the same time, like we already talked, the, the colloquial use of the word vampire, even in film, through the 10s and 20s, right, uh, definitely leads them to, you know, not necessarily expect something else entirely, but certainly, uh, certainly something else. There was one of the Criterion essays makes reference to uh, a movie I can't, I can't remember offhand, uh, which it was. Um, and I don't... <laughs> Even it's a very long essay, so I'm not going to find it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but makes reference to like even early vampire films just post this, uh, where uh, 
where jokes were made about that definition of vampire, like uh, mm. like the manservant saying to the vampire hunter as he prepares all of his uh, gadgetry and 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 uh, gets his garlic together or whatnot, saying, "Oh, I thought you fought them with wallets," and winking at the camera oh, yeah, or whatnot. Yeah. You know, mm. um, <laughs> so you know what? that jokiness has always been in genre film too. Right. And, right. And, and that's and that's where I was going to right. Sure. Right. And where sure. I was sure. going to go with sure. that is that like beyond the jokiness that's inherent to genre film anyway, <laughs> I would argue that like horror film, especially <laughs> and some other genres are always in a constant battle with being comedic, like at all times, like like any horror movie can become a comedy in a split second on accident. Like it can be done on purpose because you want to write that. But also, it's just so easy to accidentally make a, a horror film that's actually just a comedy, and I think that's probably been true of horror film, and then probably and presumably, I have not read a lot of horror writing, but probably horror writing as well, right? Because the tropes are so dangerous. All of them are always a joke and also scary. Could be scary at the same time, right? Like, mm-hmm. and so like something like the skull turning, right? Like, depending on your audience, maybe your audience finds that pointed. Or maybe your audience just starts laughing at you. I, yeah, so I, I would be really interested to learn more about this, but I think that that horror as a genre, because it, it, it just predates film a lot, mm-hmm. that by the time film got hold of it, uh, it was it already been in yeah. the position that you're describing. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but certainly, you know, like, if you think about, like, Frankenstein... The, the book, you know, right. <laughs> or you think about, you know, horror, horror literature... It's really nowadays, right? Like, like when I read through this book, our vampires ourselves, and they describe some of the ways that vampires are depicted, and one of them is like as a very large cat, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, like, and so today that would be like you couldn't put that on the screen and expect people to be afraid of that. Um, but in a different context, and in sort of non-visual based context, where people have different schemas in their brains for you know what the world kind of is built as right. and looks like. Um, the the kinds of things that we see as being very innocuous or even comedic are terrifying, and so you know I, I'm not convinced that the the skull turning uh, I could see that as as being received as comedic by some viewers, but I could also see other viewers seeing that and be like, oh my god, that's right, right. Well, like exactly that's you know sort of, yeah. we joke about the idea that some people were like a train is coming right for me when Edison you know showed his like right. train movie or whatever, but that happened right. like people saw that and they were terrified. Well, I mean, they thought a train was going to hit them. <laughs> but then again, like you just have to keep in mind everybody ha- like I I agree with you completely. Like I I an interesting point that's kind of related to this in my mind is. Um, is that like new technologies present people with like new like schema to understand the world, and and can oftentimes really derail human brains. One of the things that exists out there is um, with VR, right? There's a there's a I forget what its exact name is. It's like Richie's Plank experience or something like that, where all it is is a VR experience where you walk out on a plank over the edge of a building, and they just try it with people, and some people can handle it. And some people, because their brain can go through the whole thing and get to the end and be like, this is all fake. But then your brain also has that rudimentary, like, oh, shit, what's going to happen here feeling. And, and so, you know, it could cause a lot of panic, too. And, 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 it, and it's more just, it, it's an interesting thing, right, because you get the train. But also, like, the skull turning, right? Like, depending on the way your brain has constructed the, schematic for under, the schema for understanding that, 
will decide right. whether or not you're like, oh, some dude's turning a table, that uh, turning a little dolly that turns a skull, or oh shit, this is like some crazy shit, right? Like, and it all depends on where where you are at the time, sort of mentally, right? And right. the only reason I, I I I brought that up, but also the thing I wanted to say about the the um about the genre fiction, you're right. But also keep in mind that like we tend to start as time goes on, we get a sort of narrowed view of past fiction work that like starts to only include those things that right. are considered important. And and we know that like for example, um, when we were doing the Buster Keaton movies, we talked about how the silent film era was fucking enormous, right? Just like so like, many movies. But now we look at it and we're like, well, we've yeah. watched the twenty movies from the silent era. We're good. Yeah. And and that's <laughs> yeah. true for literature yeah. too, right? Like where we get we start we start weaning off all the literature that's not considered important. There was probably really shitty genre fiction written. In, uh, like in, written in the 1800s that we just don't read anymore because it's just it was it was comedic at the time everybody laughed at it totally. it was garbage and they threw it away and no one ever like you get that with like those dime store pop novels right like yeah. nobody unless you love them as a child and you're George fucking Lucas they're <laughs> right. not a masterpiece to you they're just gone and you're never going right. to reference them you're never going to think about them again or you control the well, criterion also collection been... and you uh, or yeah you control enough. the criterion collection <laughs> you you put Robinson well, Crusoe on like... Mars in, in, yeah, they yeah. also could have been extremely popular right, at right, that right, time. Right. Absolutely, so it's not totally. Even that yeah. They were like unpopular. Yeah. They could have been huge, and they're just totally gone. Right. right. And right. in modern ways of viewing it, you're like, this is garbage now, and yeah. we don't yeah. like it. It's not our. It doesn't meet our what we want. Right. So. Right. Yeah. Also, I, I want to issue a very small correction. That thing about the Edison train film scaring people to run out of the theater. When I said that was real, I did not mean that people actually <laughs> ran out of the theater. Right. I mean that people had an emotional reaction to a train on a, on a right. screen in right. black and white. Right. I, did not, I did not. That is a persistent myth that yes, people actually I, yeah, thought I, a train I, was yes, going I'm to aware. hit them. I meant that but, people were moved, some to tears, by seeing a train <laughs> rolling on a screen. Right. Well, and, <laughs> anyway. but like, but and that's that's what I was kind of getting with with the with the VR thing is that like, no yeah. one who goes through that experience actually thinks they're going to die and fall off a building. Right. But your ability to <laughs> yeah. handle what's happening on screen when it's totally new to you is is really right. depends on who you are as a person. Like really, and it's seriously yeah, yeah. very defined by the time period. And right. Then, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. As, lo- as long as we're offering mild corrections, it was uh, Lumiere Brothers, <laughs> not Edison. Uh, I don't want to get. Uh, oh no! I don't want to get any angry. <laughs> well, angry as long as we're, on uh, your no, I was like, I wa- now I uh, want to have a correction, and I don't have one. I'm sorry. Uh, Here, I'm I'll say something ready, else. I don't know. Why did I think? Did Edison have a train? I mean, movie? I'm sure he did, but, <laughs> but I mean, but, again, anyway. but the one that those stories are told about are right. Yeah. No, that's you're yeah. right. You're right. No. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, see the problem with me issuing corrections is, this is some I don't sort know of movie anything, podcast? so I don't, <laughs> I can't offer corrections because no. I don't know anything. Well, I blamed on Buster Keaton's name earlier in this podcast. All of, so all of what both of you have been are. talking about uh, really makes me think about what I love about the second New York Times review that the the Wikipedia article references the the Paris premiere where the reporter talks about some people being enthralled and some people dying laughing, right? Uh, And it's just the past is more complicated than we want it to be often, right? Right, right. And people are people no matter when they lived. Uh, And and there's going to be people. Unless they're a vampire. Unless they're they're a vampire. Uh, Or wolfman or... uh, (sighs) 
or what have you. Yeah. I will I will point out that Wolfman has the name Man in it, so I think <laughs> they still qualify as yeah. Yes, but when they're when they're wolves, they're not men. That's this is true. You make a valid it's a point. Slash. What about swamp creatures? Uh in fact, vampires are more human than the Wolfman during the Wolfman. That's absolutely true. true. Absolutely. Sorry to derail your point, Adam. I just wanted to offer that correction. <laughs> but to get back to what I was saying, all of that is uh, just a reminder of the, uh, you know, like Pat said, like 90%, if not more, of all silent films are just gone. We'll never know what they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyone who remembers them. There are probably still people alive who remember films that just do not exist, right? Uh, that's, uh, you know, occasionally we find one where somebody remembered it enough True. to try and look for uh, uh, it. Right. And it turns out it was in the Scorsese closet. Scorsese gets of, in his time yeah. machine and, and travels right. back in time, finds it, and brings it to the present, and somebody finds it in a suitcase underneath a, right. in a bus. <laughs> right. Some crazy right. shit like that. Uh See that one? Yeah. yeah. That one was the, the Cassavetes film was left on the bus. It's just, it's ridiculous <laughs> that that these things happened, right? Um, and that they were recovered. Uh, but, you know, how people react, you know, famously the Lumiere Brothers film, uh, the stories about people thinking, running out of the theater, thinking they were about to die or whatever. Uh, but I'm sure there are people who were very deep in it and there are people who laughed at it and there are people who enjoyed sure. it for what it was as a Absolutely. work of fiction even at the time right yeah right and uh to a certain extent laughter is also a fear response so maybe there's that too well, but right well don't don't for don't uh sorry absolutely that's definitely true that's my main <laughs> one uh but like um the uh, other thing that's worth keeping in mind is we can never underestimate how much every human being alive wants to imagine every person who's now dead was a fucking moron <laughs> right. This is just right. a thing. We right. always look at or the past not and we're like, right. yeah, yeah. All either these very people... stupid or not real. Right, exactly. So we, we have a tendency to look at the past and be like, yep, that guy, fucking idiot. And and we <laughs> yeah. see that we can and we and we can like we can live in that moment right now, right? Because we look at what's happening in the world right now and be like and then we can still say the words like, How did the Germans let it happen, right? And then live in the time period we and, and like those words can still come out of our mouths. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, well, those guys were fucking morons. We're not gonna let. We're not gonna do that, right? Like, I know. It, it's we I have know. a tendency to do that. We're like, oh yeah, everybody who came before us, total fucking moron, had no idea what was up, couldn't tie his own shoelaces, like just didn't know anything about anything, and that's what we want to do. And that's the well, train story fits that model, right? We're like, right. those people sure. were fucking idiots. The we're masses, not gonna, but also right because the, the well, guy but, whose but name also, you know he wasn't an idiot and you'll get in trouble for calling him an idiot but right, that's also course. true yeah we can also have weird allegiance <laughs> but, but, but to I, random I think there's, ones there's yeah. another side to that coin right is you can also read the train story and uh the opposite way right which is the way that i think i i tend to read it it's not people were so stupid they thought a train was coming at them in the theater i imagine it as right um people were as taken by wonderful new visions right. then as they would have been now, right? right? Oh, yeah. And you're, you know, that, I that see someone's an optimist. The complexity of experiencing something you've never seen before, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, is like really actually kind of cool to think about, and that has its same uh, implications for what you're talking about in the political sense. In that, I think back to like. You know, what did my Jewish relatives in the 30s think when they were living in Germany? Right. Yeah. When, like, my, my great-grandfather was in the German army uh, fighting for Germany, the country, you know, in right. World War One, 
what did he start thinking after that? Right. Like, what, right. It, what did it feel like? Right. Uh, and anyway, and, and trying to learn those lessons. Maybe watching a movie like this and forcing ourselves to be like, what would it have been like to watch this movie without ever having seen, you know, the, the next 100 years worth of uh, movies? Vampire films right? especially. What would it have been yeah. like to be, you know, in the theater for that right. and, and experience it? And, yeah, and another thing jumping off from that is the fact that a lot of the visual effects in this really do hold up. Right. Yeah. Are yeah, still really, sure. really good. Yeah. 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 Say yeah. what you will about spinning skulls, but like, man, <laughs> that fucking we talked about it earlier, but that shadow work is just fucking the off shadow the stuff hook, so cool. man. That would be creepy, and no matter when you watch it, <laughs> just straight up. A hundred percent. I totally agree with that. And the, and of course, like the famous scene of of him looking down at his own body in the coffin mm-hmm. is really striking right. and works perfectly well. And again, the the. I think probably in the end, the shadow stuff is like my favorite. But my second favorite uh, thing in this movie is the weird facial expressions and, and looks yeah. Um, yeah. that Leone is doing. Absolutely. Right? You know, while yeah. she's like coming under the sway of the vampire. Yeah, they are. Yeah. It's very unsettling, very slow yeah. and deliberate, and more willing to like freak you out than really a lot wow. of modern horror movies. Right, right, right. <laughs> Absolutely. And then and then the way her sister reacts to that and goes sort right. of like semi-catatonic is like it, it it's oh yeah. No, it's just it's amazing. Right, it works. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. You're like, right. yeah, it's really, really good. Yeah, it was very impressive. My my favorite scene on similar lines, my favorite shots are the uh the POV shots from inside the casket, looking through yep. the window yeah, while the man absolutely. lights the candle on top of it. Or yeah. It's it's I, like up at the church yeah. as he's being walked. Oh yeah, right. those are really really good. And then I, I yeah. it's not really a, a special effects, but like the 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 sort of boatman who's also definitely got an enormous fucking sigh, and we never like <laughs> see <laughs> him really. He's always <laughs> right. in shadow. He's, he's always in silhouette. It's yeah. like yeah. really weird. <laughs> it, it, well, it's it's real good, right? It's like the first thing you see in the movie, and you're like, well, this is ominous. Yeah, <laughs> things are going <laughs> really well are. here. <laughs> <laughs> a sigh could work as a paddle in a pinch. Uh, I suppose maybe. it's like, why is he the boat man? I don't. Who decided that? Well, I mean, it's it's that is one laugh. of the most it's, overt images in the entire I was movie, about to right? Say. You know, oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Like yeah, so direct, the river sticks, I mean, right? You know, no, no, I I didn't mean I didn't mean from a from a. From a, <laughs> I, a sort of storytelling wise, I meant like right. in real life. Why is the boatman also right, a dude certainly. with a giant from like a plot side? Like, standpoint? Absolutely. Yeah, right. like it's like why he just like hangs the, out there the all the time. <laughs> it's yeah. like, why, well, my field's does, right there, so why does Gray not out. not leave at that point immediately? Like, <laughs> it's like, well, that, you, that side isn't even functional. It's just too large oh. to be used. What are you oh. doing? I'll find another boat. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Like I, I think I picked the wrong end. I'll see you later. Oh, guys, this has been very fun, but I think it is time for us to draw this to a close. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. It is always a pleasure to have you. Uh, you were on. Thank you I don't for having me. <laughs> At this point, the way the recording schedule has worked, I don't remember if you were on last week or two weeks ago as far as everything goes. Oh, yeah. Also, oh. the fact me either. that this posts on the 28th. <laughs> Next week, it'll be Mon Uncle Antoine from Canada uh, from 1971, directed by Claude Jutre. Jutra? Jutra? I don't even know how to say that. It's I, uh, Presumably, it's French-Canadian, and I don't know I don't what to know do things. with J's in French-Canadian. Uh, this week, we have finished up our Carl Theodore Dreyer as far as the Criterion Collection is concerned. And uh, in a couple weeks, we'll finish up our Jacques Tati as far as the Criterion Collection is concerned. We're really tying up loose ends 
in in a bit of a run moving forward. Uh, but thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am, as always, John Patrick Oyatari Dorgan. With me, as always, I, what did I just do there? No, no, I just I'm said fine I was it. you. <laughs> it's all, Why is it's my all brain? Checks We've out. got another episode to record, and my brain is broken. <laughs> uh. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am, as always, Lee Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Oyatari Dorgan. And we'll see you next time. been lost in criteria under co-host adam glass you can find me on twitter at the adam glass my partner is john patrick Oitari dorgan and you can find him at j patrick dorgan check out more of the show at lostincriterion.com or hey give us a review on itunes it's nice if you really like what you hear consider supporting us at patreon.com slash lost criterion hey our theme music is by jonathan hape check him out at jonathanhape.com and thanks for listening We appreciate it.